The Lord's Supper, starting from verse 17, Matthew 26. On the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. That evening, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. (coughs) Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Whenever I uh, think of this question, I always come to the conclusion, no, I'm a realist, that's what I am. But I'm guessing that that's probably what everyone thinks about themselves, right? I've got a friend, Rowan, who is one of those annoying eternal optimists. You can see him up there, you can just see it on his face, can't you? always so positive and he thinks my realism is really pessimism now I'm okay with that though because I know that his optimism is actually (laughs) self-delusion we had to share a study for a number of years you can imagine it was um, all smooth and calm (laughs) but the reality is whether you're an optimist or a pessimist or you're pretending that you're a realist like me whoever you are we all need hope In fact, people don't really function properly without it. Our lives kind of grind to a halt and become completely unbearable without hope. Now, I'm not sure why we thought that this would be a good day, but a good idea, but today we're we're actually asking ourselves to imagine a world without hope. I think for most of us, this is barely even possible because unless we're actually suffering with bad depression, which many of us at some point in our lives may well do, 
But if we're not in that situation, we almost can't help ourselves but have hope, even though we might struggle to explain why it is. What is it that gives us hope in this life, even in the face of some really hopeless kind of things? Like, for example, when we look at ISIS or politics or global warming. Now, apparently February was the hottest month ever recorded. But still, most of us hold hope for the future. Or what is it that gives us hope when we face more personal things like sickness or relationship breakdown or financial problems? Still, most people feel that they have reasons for hope. We are hope-based creatures. What we think about our, our future, it, it affects our present. It's just part of what it means for us to be human. Let me explain what I mean. Imagine that there are two blokes who are doing exactly the same job. It's, it's almost identical in every way. So they both have the job of counting how many blocks of cheese there are in a box in a cool room. My friend had exactly this job at Bigger Cheese. He wasted a whole summer wearing a big coat in the cool room, counting how many blocks of cheese. He already knew how many there would be, but he just had to confirm that there was that number in the box. So imagine these, these, two, these two men, they both got this same job. <clears throat> they both work 10 hours a day, just a short lunch break. They're, they're on their own in two different fridges. It's a pretty ordinary do- job. And the only difference between them is that one, at the end of the year, is going to receive $30,000 for his work, whereas the other one's been told if, if he makes it to the end of the year, he'll receive $30 million. Apart from that, everything else is the same. And one day they're sitting down at lunch and the guy who's getting $30,000 a year says, don't you just hate this job? Isn't it just so awful and boring? Don't you want to quit? And the other guy, it's probably Rowan, guy getting $30 million, he says, actually, I don't mind it. You know, he says, it's, it's, I know it gets boring and cold sometimes, but I, I sort of like it. In fact, I find myself singing. I can't, can't help but sort of sing the cold never bothered me anyway as I work. <laughs> Why is he like that? Why is he so cheery about such an ordinary job? Well, it's because in the cold, boring times, what's he thinking about? What kind of warms his heart? Well, he's thinking about the $30 million. His future hope affects his present. Well, what's your future hope that affects your present? What gets you up each day? What gets you to work? You know, what keeps you going through the, work, the weekly cycle, packing the kids' lunches? Is there a future hope that affects your day-to-day? For some people, their future hope is their degrees. Their view of the future is positive because they, they feel they're on the career path they want. You know, so they're prepared to live on two-minute noodles and tomato sauce temporarily while they study because they're going somewhere. But if you go a bit deeper, what's the hope that stands behind something like the hope of getting a degree? See, is the deeper hope actually fulfillment? And the degree is just a means to that end. Or is the deeper hope that the career will get you respect or is it that it will, you're actually hoping to be in a good financial position? But again, if you go deeper, if it's one of those things, what's the hope that, that's behind that hope? 
if it was financial, is the deeper hope that one day you'll be able to be comfortable, you know, buy a house and all those sorts of things? Or is the hope that you can have security in your life? And then I know this is a bit annoying, but again, if you go deeper, what's behind that, the hope behind that? Is the deeper hope behind wanting security, for example, that we wish for an existence where we don't have to face pain or danger, that we wish for an existence where we are always in control, never out of control. Now, it's fascinating to analyse your hopes like that, to really think deeper and to think, what is it that you're really after? What's your greatest hope that stands behind all other hopes? It's fascinating and it's a good thing to do, but it can also be a deeply disturbing thing to do. Because as we start to unravel what our greatest hopes are, as, as we figure out what those simple, basic hopes that lie behind all our other hopes are, like the hope to be secure, you know, to never face pain or danger or situations where we're not in control, well, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that despite the fact that we can work hard to try to make those, hap- those hopes happen, there's just so much that we can't guarantee. Despite our best efforts, sometimes things are just out of our control, dashing our hopes. Our bodies fail, or we're not smart enough to achieve what we want to achieve, or there's a financial crisis, or relationships can fall apart despite all our efforts. And then sometimes even as we're struggling for our hopes, we can actually be destroying them. Like think about the husband who overworks because he's trying to fulfill some hope for his family, but meanwhile his family is falling apart. Most hopes require our performance of some kind. You know, if your hope's in education, well, you've got to perform. If it's in career and making money, then it's up to us to make it happen. If our hopes are kind of having a shiny, happy family where our teenagers just love to talk to us instead of grunt when they're in our presence... Well, for all of these things, it requires us to perform. It depends on us. And sometimes it just feels like life is a slow, painful realisation that we don't have what it takes to perform the way that we hoped we could. In his book, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope, Andrew Delbanco argues that a culture has got to provide a narrative of hope. And they've got to do that, he says, to avert this, to avert the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. Now, mostly our culture does provide this narrative, but sometimes doesn't it feel like it just wears a bit thin and you catch a glimpse of reality? This is depressing. Why are we imagining a world without hope? Whose hopeless idea was that? It's well and truly time that we change gear and suggest, and I want to suggest today that that there is every reason for us to have hope. Today I want to talk about the greatest basis for hope that exists, and that's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to say that the reason Jesus' resurrection is the greatest basis for hope is because unlike most other bases for hope, this one is not based on our efforts. It's not based on our performance. And unlike many other bases for hope, this one is not based on wishful thinking, but it's based 
on fact. Now, I've just said the complete opposite, of course, of what most people assume about Christianity, about Jesus' death and resurrection. See, what do most people think of with religion? They think it's, on, it's absolutely on about performance, don't they? It's on about keeping a list of rules. And what do they think about religion? Well, they think it's on about wishful thinking. You know, it's not much more than fairy tales. And in many ways, they're right. Religion is on about those things. But I'm not really talking about religion. I'm talking about having hope in a historical person. I'm talking about relationship. A relationship that's built on his performance. A relationship that's not wishful thinking, but is built on facts that stand in history. Let me show you why. Look with me at Matthew 26. So this is the famous Last Supper, of course, and it's the night before Jesus dies. And so he's explaining to his followers what his death is all about. And he uses the Passover meal that they're sharing to do this, this ancient tradition that's been going on for over a thousand years. Verse 26, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Passover meal was all about remembering that God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and he had made a covenant with them. Covenant's kind of like a contract, but more personal. So marriage is, is a kind of covenant. Covenant is it's a special kind of relationship. And as they're eating, Jesus is explaining to his followers that his death is going to establish a special kind of relationship between God and them. And did you notice how? Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The basis of this new relationship between God and people is not their performance. It's not their best efforts. It's not keeping a list of rules. The basis of this relationship between God and his people is going to be the death of Jesus bringing forgiveness to his people. God is bound to his people on the basis of Jesus' performance. Do you see what this means? God is establishing a relationship with people that just can't be broken. Because at its very heart, it's based on forgiveness of all the things that we do that would lead to the relationship being broken. This is a relationship that's made possible by Jesus dying in the place of his people. So what's this got to do with hope? Everything. Everything, because if we are God's people, and so if we belong to his kingdom, then we have absolutely every reason to have hope. Because our future is so rock solid and so wonderful that if we understand it properly, then we'll be filled with far more hope than the cheese worker who's going to receive $30 million. Look at verse 29, where Jesus explains to his followers why they should see 
such a horrible, dark thing as his cruel death on a cross as the greatest basis for hope that this world has ever seen. As they're passing the wine around, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus points them beyond his death to what his death achieves for those who follow him. With picture language, he points to what's to come. And it's a picture of a party with Jesus making a toast to the new reality that they find in God's kingdom. When Jesus drinks wine with them again, the world will be made completely new. Now, a lot of religions or beliefs have some idea of an afterlife, don't they? And so you might be thinking, well, what's so good about this hope that Jesus is talking about here? But again, this is not a hope that's based on our performance. There's no five pillars to observe. There's no eightfold path, no list of rules to tick off to get there. And more than that, did you notice the nature of this hope in many religions and other ideas that you'll come across? The hope after death is that we go on living somehow. You know, so you hear people say things like, I'll go on living in my kids. Or you hear people express a vague hope that someone's now looking down on us from above. Or a person's life force joins the collective energy force of the universe. Or perhaps the most impersonal of them all is that kind of life cycle idea. My body, my atoms, they still go on as a part of nature. But surely that's pretty poor hope. That's impersonal existence, not existence of the self. It's existence without relationships. And therefore, it's existence without what really matters, love. But what does Jesus say to his followers? He says, he will drink with you. With you as you. The same person existing beyond death. But you renewed somehow, not as a kind of consolation prize, but as a restoration to be everything you were meant to be, everything that we can't even live up to be in this life. The hope he gives is not some impersonal existence. It's physical, being able to drink wine with Jesus and other people. See, this is not wishful thinking. This is solid hope of an existence without the pain the suffering and the emptiness of this life. And again, it's not based on our striving, our effort. It's based on Jesus' death. But there's something else that it's based on. And there's something else why this is not just wishful thinking. How can you be sure that this hope is real? That if you follow Jesus, you'll go on existing as a person forever in God's kingdom. Well, it's because Jesus has been there and done that for you. Jesus has been resurrected already with a body. We can have certain hope because the resurrection of Jesus has happened in history. Now, if you have the presupposition that it's just not possible that someone could come back to life, then it's not surprising that no amount of evidence is is going to change you. You've already ruled it out. In that case, there's not a problem 
with the evidence. There's a problem with your belief system that says, despite the evidence, I'll never believe in the resurrection. And if you only accept certain types of evidence, certain kinds, like reproducible kind of experiments, then likewise, you'll never believe in the resurrection. The kind of evidence that we need to examine is the only kind of evidence that's appropriate and logical to examine in this situation, and that's historical evidence, just like you'd use to examine World War I or Julius Caesar. And if that kind of evidence is inaccessible to you, then again, it's not a problem with the evidence, it's a problem with your belief system that says, despite the evidence, it's not the sort of evidence I like, so I can't believe. Jesus came back to life. It happened in history. It has left a massive footprint on the world. Now, each individual bit of evidence might not sway you on its own, but as you bring them all together, they, pre- they present such a convincing case that the only way to explain what happened in history is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he came back to life. I mean, how else do you explain what happened? Like, how do you explain the birth of the church? How do you explain Jewish people worshipping Jesus? That people went from believing that God was completely separate from this world, that it was blasphemy, worthy of death to even suggest that God could be in this world as a statue or an idol, let alone as a human, and then overnight went to worshipping Jesus as God. How do you explain that? Especially when for them to do that, it meant they were in danger. Their life was in danger. How do you explain why the followers of Jesus who claimed to have seen him alive again were willing to die for this belief? Now, this is very different to dying for your religion. This is different to being a martyr or or a suicide bomber. Dying, you know, these people die because they believe that that's what God wants them to do. They they die because they believe that's what their religion might tell them to do. But this, with the disciples, is so different because this is dying for something they claimed to see with their own eyes. You don't die for something that you know is a lie. And not just one of Jesus' followers died for their belief that he was alive, but almost all of the twelve died horrible deaths. Or how do you explain Jesus' own brother going from opposing him before his death to worshipping him as God after his death? There's pretty much nothing that's going to convince me to worship my brother as God, I've got to say. How do you explain why none of the officials could ever present Jesus' dead body? How do you explain the way Christianity had widely dislodged Greco-Roman pagan religions within 200 years? The historical evidence stacks up. Hundreds of people saw a man raised from the dead and the evidence was so clear that it changed individuals and it changed the world. You can say, no, a resurrection can't happen. Or you can look at the historical evidence, just some of which I've hinted at today. You see, the hope Jesus brings to this world, it's got nothing to do with a philosophy to live by. It's not a a moral teaching, a list of rules. The hope he brings comes from his death and resurrection. It's the strong and certain hope that if we follow him, we will one day live again beyond death. This is the greatest future hope you can imagine. 
and it absolutely changes everything now. In the good times in life, but also in the hard times, our future expectation is rock solid and unimaginably wonderful. Do you have this hope? Or is your hope based on your own effort for what you can achieve in this life? If so, I wish I could persuade you to exchange your hope for this hope. Because I reckon when we get behind our hopes, you know, back to the simple hopes that stand behind all our other hopes, things like our hope for security, our hope for comfort and happiness, our hope to be loved no matter what, and our hope for relationships that will never end. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, gives the only safe basis for these hopes. Jesus gives the only basis for hope that's rock solid and not wishful thinking. A friend of mine two weeks ago went in to have a cyst removed from her ovary and she came out to hear the news that she would never have kids. They'd had to do a hysterectomy. And she found out she has stage 3 ovarian cancer. She's 35. That's very sad. I, I I can't really explain how sad I feel let alone any of us understand what she's actually feeling and going through. As she mourns not being able to have kids, as she faces chemo, and who knows what else. And yet, she's not without hope. She has hope. Not a, you know, a vague sort of wishful thinking kind of hope. Not a, I'm going to beat this kind of hope. Or not a, I'm going to turn this into something positive kind of hope. She has a personal, certain unimaginably wonderful hope because she follows Jesus. And her hope, it's based on his performance. Not her bodies, not her families that will never be. Her hope is based on his death and resurrection that means that she is now a daughter of God no matter what life may bring. She will be there with Jesus to see this world new with no sickness no pain, no suffering. She wrote, these are dark days for me and grief and fear are never far away. But she says, we continue to cling to our Lord Jesus in our fears and sadness. world it's quite dark when you strip away the gloss and you take away the wishful thinking you know and you really look at your hopes and your ability to achieve them when you weigh up what you can actually achieve when you face death certain extinction but those of us who know jesus we can't help but live with hope even though we live through dark times. Because we don't face extinction. (laughs) We face resurrection. We will drink with Jesus, with Him. We will toast with Him to the new reality in God's kingdom. In the end, That's the one solid basis for hope that there is in this world. 
Do you have this hope? Do you want this hope? Later on, fill out those slips. If you want to know more about this, tick that you, you'd like to find out more about Jesus and put it in the bags as they come around. Or come and talk to me afterwards. You know, even though I'm so sad, it's like a friend who sent a, another friend who sent a text who's also friends with this lady. And she said, she's deeply saddened. But at the same time, she herself is not afraid for this friend because she knows that she knows Jesus. It's the greatest hope that you can have. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that your love is so extreme for us, that you have made a covenant with us that can't be broken, that we can't break, Lord, that when we trust in Jesus, there is no doubt that we will stand with you forever, resurrected like him, in a kingdom that will never end, that is unimaginably wonderful. Lord, help us to have this hope because we have Jesus. Lord, help us to see that it is real, not just wishful thinking, and that it changes everything. Amen.